Hey, good morning. Welcome. Glad that you are here. Uh, if you're a guest of ours, we are honored to have you with us today. Um, I've got just a little bit of a cold going on, which means I almost was able to sing bass on that last song. Not quite, but uh, we're getting there. So if I, if I sound more mature today, don't let it fool you, okay? I grew up a child of the 60s, kind of early 70s. And I was, I guess, the first generation to really grow up on television, which goes a long way, I think, in explaining why so many people in my generation are a little bit messed up. But uh, I grew up watching television. It was only three channels, but still, when I was a kid, I had a television routine, especially in the winter when the days were short, too cold to go outside. I had a television routine. Every morning before school, I'd get up early and I'd watch Sea Hunt with Mike, Bridge, Mike uh, Lloyd Bridges, Mike Nelson. Anybody else ever watch Sea Hunt? It's a great show. Yeah. And then when I came home in the afternoons from school, I'd watch Leave it to Beaver and The Munsters. And I watched The Lone Ranger. I love The Lone Ranger. A fiery horse with the speed of light, a cloud of dust, and a mighty high silver, the Lone Ranger. With his faithful Indian companion, Tonto, the masked rider of the plains, kept justice in the early west. Return with us now to those early days of yesteryear. The Lone Ranger rides again. Yeah, I watched some television when I was a kid. And I loved the Lone Ranger. He was this ex-Texas Ranger, you know, that just went around, showed up in places. He did some good, and then he left. And he never got paid for it. I don't know how he paid the bills, but he always showed up, you know, looking good on his horse, and he did some things, then he left. And he always had a mask on. And as a kid, I never understood why he wore a mask. Now, I know the story, and I know the original part, and I know why he originally wore a mask, but why did he keep wearing a mask? It made him very mysterious. And, of course, the show ended the same way every time. In 30 minutes, the Lone Ranger and Tano would come in. They'd save the day, save the town, save the girl. And then they never just sort of drifted off, right? It was always a very dramatic exit that the Lone Ranger had. Silver would rear up, hi old Silver, away! And they would go thundering into the horizon, like they had somewhere really important to get to. And there was always a group of people standing around, and there was always someone who said, who was that masked man? I didn't get a chance to thank him. And there was always some wise little guy standing there, some sage that said, why, that was the Lone Ranger. It ended the same way every week. Same question, same answer. I wanted to grow up to be the Lone Ranger one day. I thought it would be so neat to be the Lone Ranger. Last Sunday... I shared with you uh, our, our vision here at Bay Area for 2020 and beyond. And I hope that you were, if not enlightened, at least a little bit encouraged as we talked about the things that we need to be more devoted to, to be the kind of church that, that God intends for us to be, to be the kind of family that we read about back in Acts chapter 2, that 242 church. I hope one of your takeaways from last week was we were never intended to be the Lone Ranger. This vision that we have, this, this, this dream that we have, this focus that we're trying to sharpen, we are in this thing together. It was never, church was never intended to be a place where someone just kind of 
galloped into the scene, performed an act of worship or performed some good deed and then rode away. We're never meant to be an island to ourselves. Never meant to be the lone ranger. We have kingdom business to be focused on. And it's going to take all of us using the gifts that God has given us to be that 242 church that we keep talking about. And so I struggled a little bit with what to talk about this week, or the week after sharing the vision. What was the logical follow-up to that? And where I finally landed was Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians is a really deep book, powerful book. Chapter 4 is such a rich chapter and part of that book. Let me share with you the first six verses in Ephesians 4. This is Paul writing. As a prisoner of the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you've received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace And then, verse 4, Paul jumps into one of his lists that he is so famous for. There's one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. One God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Those six verses... We could easily spend, you know, 12 weeks going through a sermon series on those six verses. In fact... I'll probably do that someday, but I'm not going to do it today. Now, I mentioned last week, if you remember, I said that it was important for us to get the why before the what and the who before the how. And I said that sounded like kind of a uh, Dr. Seuss kind of thing. Actually, that's an Apostle Paul kind of thing. Because Paul always talks about the why before he gets to the what. And he always talks about the who before he gets to to the how. Paul always talks about what we should believe before he starts talking about how we should behave. In other words, he always talks about doctrine before he starts talking about lifestyle. And it's interesting, in the first three chapters of Ephesians, Paul doesn't tell us to do anything. There is not a single command in the first three chapters of Ephesians. Now, there's some great teaching, to be sure, He talks about the fact that we are blessed, that we are chosen, that we are adopted, that we are accepted, that we are redeemed, that we are forgiven, that we have been filled with the Holy Spirit. So absolutely, Paul talks about the why before the what, and he absolutely talks about the who before the how. 37 times, in a relatively short letter, Paul's going to use the term in Christ. But then in chapter 4, uh, Ephesians, uh, Paul shifts his, his focus a little bit. Ephesians chapter 4, Paul's going to get really personal. And he's going to start to get really practical. And it's interesting that the very first command in this letter, in, the, in this book to the, the Ephesians, Paul says we are to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Live a life worthy of the calling you've received. Paul's saying, I want your walk to match your talk. I want you to behave like you believe. And then he immediately talks about unity, love, and respect. Be completely humble 
gentle, be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Why does Paul start here? Why does he start with relationships, specifically with unity? I want to spend a little bit of time talking about that this morning because it's so vital to God's purpose, and it is so vital to to our vision. God wants to show the world what he's doing through Christ, and he wants the church to be the proof of what he's doing through Christ. God wants to prove through the church it can be done. I made a statement a couple weeks ago. I told you at the time that the statement wasn't original with me, but I thought maybe if I say it often enough, you'll think that it's something I was smart enough to come up with. So I'm going to say it again this week. Our oneness is our witness. Our, our oneness is a witness to the world. The fact that we can do life together is a witness to the world that what God has in mind works. What God is doing in Christ. We're to illustrate that God knows what he's doing. And so Paul says, keep the unity of the Spirit. And you'll notice he doesn't say, achieve the unity of the Spirit. He tells us to keep the unity of the Spirit. That unity has already been established by Jesus, by the Holy Spirit. We don't have to achieve the unity. We're just told to keep the unity of the Spirit. So let me ask you a question. What does that phrase imply? Keep the unity of the Spirit. What does that imply? Doesn't it imply that in the church there's going to be differences? And I'm not necessarily talking about foundational differences. You know, we talked about that last week, those non-negotiable things. But I'm just talking about we're different people. And we're going to have differences. We're different individuals. Some of us are a little bit more different than others, right? But again... Think about what Paul is saying. You know, if, if, if everybody looked like me, if everybody thought just like I thought, if everybody believed just like I believed, if everybody loved just the things that I love, if the things that drive me crazy drove everybody else crazy, if we all had the same opinions, the same preferences, if we all came from the same background, same culture, same comfort zone, Would we have to keep the unity of the Spirit? No. It would be so easy, right? It would just come naturally because we wouldn't have any differences. But Paul knows, and I think Paul is trying to tell us, we can be brothers without being twins. We can be family without being identical twins. Our our oneness shouldn't be confused with sameness. It's a tremendous blessing to be a part of a family that's filled with differences and diversity. And I've said this before, I'd hate to go to a church where everybody was just like me. Wouldn't you? (laughs) Yeah, you would. For one, the singing would be terrible. (laughs) But I don't want to go to a church where everybody's just like me. How would I ever grow in love if everybody was just like me? I'm commanded to grow in love. But I'm going to tell you, I am an expert at loving me. I'm the world's best at loving me. I don't have to work at that at all. It comes naturally. But if I'm going to grow in love, 
I'm going to have to spend some time with people who aren't just like me. I'm going to have to be around people who stretch me a little bit, who challenge me a little bit, make me think. And again, I think that's what God's doing in his church. He's showing the world that he can make it work. We're the advertisement of God's wisdom. But I think too many times as churches and Christians, we get so hung up on things that really aren't too big a deal. And we start majoring in minors, small insignificant differences. We argue about things that I think we ought to be celebrating. Now, Satan is really aware of the mission that God has given the church. We're to go and make disciples of all nations. We're to tell people the good news of Jesus. But I think Satan does a really good job sometimes, if I can just be honest, of getting us to expend an awful lot of time and an awful lot of energy thinking about and arguing about focusing on questions that really nobody's asking. That's why Paul said, first, I want you to keep the unity of the Spirit. And he says, I want you to be humble. And I want you to be gentle. And I want you to be patient. And I want you to be loving. Could you imagine if we could just get a handle on those things? Humility, gentleness, patience, and love. Those are essential to unity. Now, Paul's talked about unity and love and respect, and then he segues right into that list of things that he says defines us as followers of Jesus. Paul was so far ahead of his time. Paul was throwing out listicles long before social media existed. You know, and here in Ephesians 4, he says, seven ones you need to know, and you're not going to believe number six is on the list. You'd click on that, right? You'd check that out. Sure. Verse 4. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. One God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Ironically, these seven ones that Paul shares here, you look through those things and and there's so many of them that historically have divided people. Paul says, no, these are the things that unite us. This is the things we have in common in Christ. And I want to talk about Paul's list this morning really quickly. And I know I'm going to drive some of you crazy because I'm not going to talk about those ones in order. In fact, I'm actually going to take the last thing that he mentions and talk about it first. And that is, we believe there's one God, one Father of all. He is over all, through all, and in all. He is the creator of the universe. You know, back in the Old Testament, God gave his people a top ten list of things that he said, this is really important for you to know. Number one on the list, chiseled in stone by the hand of God. You should have no other gods before me. We don't recognize, we don't worship any other God because there is no other God. There is only one God. And then we believe there's one Lord, Jesus Christ. There's a lot of other historical figures. There's a lot of other present individuals who people recognize, who people worship. They aren't Jesus' equals. Jesus has no equals. Jesus wasn't just a good man who had a way with words. 
He wasn't just a teacher. He wasn't just a prophet. He wasn't just a rabbi. He is the Son of God. And He is Lord. And that's a statement that we better understand. And you talk about a non-negotiable fact. This is a non-negotiable fact. Jesus is Lord. Romans 10, verse 9. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you'll be saved. For it's with your heart that you believe and are justified. And it's with your mouth that you confess and are saved. As the Scripture says, anyone who trusts in Him will never be put to shame. There's no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on Him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. There is one Lord, and His name is Jesus. Now, I think that our problem with with this thought isn't recognizing Jesus as Lord. I think most of us, probably all of us in this room, recognize Jesus as Lord. Our problem comes in, I think, understanding that there is just one Lord. Because most people say, there's two lords, Jesus and me. Or Jesus and my family. Or Jesus and my job. Jesus and my bank account. Jesus and my hobbies. Apostle Paul says there's one person, there's one power that can rule your heart, consume your life, and guide your steps. And make no mistake, it is Jesus Christ. And one day, every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess Jesus as Lord. And then we believe there's one Spirit. The Holy Spirit does so much more in life of a believer than we will ever understand this side of heaven. But all through the New Testament, we read about the fact that the Holy Spirit brings believers together, never separates, never divides people. And then we believe in one hope. There's just one hope. Our glory is the cross. Our hope is in the resurrected Savior. And again, Satan does a pretty good job to get us to argue about the hope that we have. When's Jesus coming back? What's it going to look like when Jesus comes back? How's it going to happen when Jesus comes back? And I guess we could talk about those things, but here's where my hope lies. He's coming back. We can talk about those other things, but but one day, he's coming back. John says in 1 John 3, Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself, just as he is pure. We believe in the hope of Jesus. And then we believe in one body. Again, Scripture uses a lot of metaphors for the people of God. Building, bride, kingdom, body. But they all suggest the same thing. Jesus is the head of just one church. You you drive down any street in Hillsborough County, and you'll see a lot of different groups kind of focused on a lot of different things. I don't think that's Jesus' idea of church. That's Satan's idea of church. Because Jesus says there's only one church. And we believe there's one faith. 
Not different faiths for different times in history. Not different faiths for different parts of the world or different communities. There's one faith for all people, all times, all places. And again, it's a faith centered on the saving work of Jesus. I got 1 Corinthians 15 there on the screen. Paul writes, Let me remind you, dear brothers and sisters, of the good news I preached to you before. You welcomed it then and still do now, for your faith is built on this wonderful message. And it's this good news that saves you if you firmly believe it. Unless, of course, you believe something that was never true in the first place. I passed on to you what was most important, what's also been passed on to me, that Christ died for our sins, just as the Scriptures said. He was buried and was raised from the dead on the third day, as the Scriptures said. The occupied cross, the unoccupied tomb, is the very center of our faith. And if you've got anything other than Jesus and the cross at the center of your faith, you've missed it. And then Paul says, there's one baptism. You know, when Paul makes this list of ones in Ephesians 4, and he puts in one baptism, on one hand you say, hmm, it's kind of odd that he would include baptism in such an impressive list. But then on the other hand, I think Paul understood that whether you're a Publican, whether you're a tax collector, whether you're an educated zealot that in one time in your life persecuted Christians, no matter who you are, we all come to Jesus through the same doorway. We're baptized into Christ. He wrote to the Galatians in Galatians 3, you're all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. You remember in Matthew chapter 16, Jesus is with his very closest friends. And he asked them, what are people saying about me? And it's pretty far into his ministry. And so what are people saying about me? And his closest friends say, well, some people say you're John the Baptist. And some people say you're Elijah, Jeremiah, one of the prophets. it's, It's kind of all over the board. And then Jesus asks, what about you? And if you remember, it's Peter that speaks up and said, I know who you are. You are the Christ. I know who you are. You are the Messiah. I know who you are. You're the one that we have been looking for for generations. I know who you are. You are the Son of God. And Jesus says, Basically, way to go, Peter. Flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you. You're exactly right. That's who I am. And on that rock, I'm going to build my church. I'm going to build my church. And the gates of hell aren't going to stop my church. This thing that we call church, it's not built on traditions. It's not built on programs. It's not built on the idea of somebody, you know, long ago that uh, just came up with, with this great concept. It is built on the rock-solid truth that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And we get to be a part of it. We get to be a part of the church. My voice is cracking. <laughs> we get to be a part of this community, this family. 
know, community is such a buzzword in Christian circles these days. Everybody's talking about community and, and the benefit of community and how important community is. And yet there's such a temptation still to isolate ourselves. There's such a temptation for us to just try to be the Lone Ranger. But Scripture has given us this great vision of different people with different backgrounds, different strengths, different weaknesses, all coming together in Christ Jesus, all coming together, not just to spend an hour together a week, not just to do church together, but to do life together, to really get into each other's lives, to get into each other's homes, to bear each other's burdens, to to celebrate with each other. Listen, we can get behind that. I'm telling you, we can sell that because that's what the world truly longs for. They don't know it, and they can't verbalize it, but everybody wants a place not just to be, they want a place to belong. They want to be in a place where everybody knows their name. And it's not a bar. (laughs) It's the family of God. Paul writes in Romans chapter 15, May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you a spirit of unity among yourselves as you follow Christ Jesus, so that with one heart and mouth you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Accept one another then, just as Christ accepted you, in order to bring praise to God. Paul knew just how important it was for Christians to live in harmony. He knew how important it was to accept one another just as Christ accepted me. Do you think I'm just so acceptable that Jesus would say, oh yeah, Tim, yeah, I've got to take him. No. We're to accept one another as Christ accepted us. And then look, he says in verse 7, when you do that, when you live in harmony, you bring praise to the Father. You make God look good. People notice that. People are drawn to that. Let me ask you to do something before we wrap up this morning. I want you to look around the room. This is your chance. Just look around. You can turn around. You can look behind you. Go ahead and smile because somebody's going to be looking at you too. Okay? But look at the people kind of sitting across from you and, you know, the people that like to come in and sit in the back. Look at all the brave people down here in the front. You know, just look at all these people. This is your family. This is our family. We are a family. Listen, when somebody gets married, these are the people that are going to celebrate with you. These are the people who are going to help you. Right, Randy? Right, Deese? These are the people you're going to lean on. When you have a child, when you have a grandchild, these are the people who are going to want to see the pictures. Okay? And they mean it. They're going to celebrate with you. This is our family. Look around. This is our family. When you lose a loved one, the people in this room, and I wish the people at second service could be with us too, and vice versa today, but the people in this family, they're the ones who are going to cry with you. And they're the ones who are going to sit with you. They're the ones who are going to pray with you. They're the ones who are going to knock on your door with a casserole. I know what I'm talking about. 
This is our family. It's as, as a dysfunctional family as I have ever been around because I'm a part of it. But this is my family. And we're going to do great things as a family because God is blessing us, and I know that. And we're going to make some mistakes as a family. We're going to stumble, and we're going to fall sometimes. I'm going to stumble, and I'm going to fall sometimes, but I don't want to do it all by myself. I want to be surrounded by people who love me and who support me and who encourage me just because I'm me and because I'm a part of this family. So I'm telling you right now as your preacher, I am going to make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. I won't always get it right, but I want to make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. And I hope you'll make that commitment as well. I'm telling you, if we can get Ephesians 4 right, there is no limit as to what God can do with this family. So that's my message for today. Listen, we're running out of time, um, but we still want to give an opportunity. If you've got something, something on your heart that you want to share with this family, we're going to make time for that. If you've got a prayer request or some, some good news that you want to share, there'll be some people here at the front of the auditorium. We've got a song that we're going to sing as a song of encouragement. You can meet us down front during that song. Let's go ahead and stand as we're singing.